Okay, I've looked at my watch, so that's good for you. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to stop when I should, but uh, I always try to be mindful of that. I know that uh, there are limitations to your stamina as well as mine. Um, uh, most of you, I, I presume all of, none of you would be able to guess what I'm about to tell you about myself. Now, I said the same thing last Easter. Some of you may remember, I doubt it. Um, but if I gave you a million guesses, I don't think any of you could ever guess what I'm about to tell you about myself. Does anybody remember what I said last year? Debbie knows. Debbie knows. Of course, she has my notes, so she knows. Um, I don't like to preach on Resurrection Sunday. I've never liked it. I know that's weird. I know you wouldn't expect to hear that from a preacher. But it's too big. It's, uh, it's too big for me. And uh, I get emotional about it. You know, it's like we should just lay on our face for 40 minutes and worship Jesus Christ. It's one of the biggest occupational hazards of being a preacher is that you always know your job's impossible. <laughs> it's, you always know. It doesn't matter how much you pray, how much you study, how much you exegete the text, how much you think and prepare and meditate, it doesn't really matter. You cannot touch the hem of the garment of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how good a preacher you are, you can't get there. You never can get there, and you realize that. So, you leave it with the Holy Spirit. Amen, Keith? The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. But there's always this frustration for every preacher. You can't preach God, you can't preach Jesus Christ adequately enough. And... When we talk about the cross, that's particularly true for me. When we talk about that unbelievably awful and unbelievably wonderful moment in time when I am was nailed to a tree. It's difficult to contemplate, much less articulate. Sovereign, omnipotent, eternal creator God has given himself as a ransom for the sins of his people. I have a lot of theology books in my office, as some of you might suspect, some of the greatest minds in the history of the church. And uh, I've often scoured them for the perfect quote about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You know what? There is no quote that's adequate for the crucifixion of God and the resurrection of Christ. I, I came to realize many years ago that the perfect quote is unquotable. It is unquotable. It would be stunned, breathless, unutterable all. That's the perfect quote. If we're going to deeply think about the crucifixion of God, His burial, and His resurrection. As I've said to you many times from this pulpit, let the whole created order and every creature in it stand in awe. I am has allowed his puny little sinful creatures to nail him to a tree. Let the whole created order be in awe. This is the depth of God's love for his people. Let the whole created order stand in awe. Beloved, if you do not experience genuine awe at this, 
then you have not yet really heard it, you have not yet understood it, nor have you believed it. If you really believe that Jesus Christ has died for you on that cross, He's the Creator God, and you're redeemed by Him, by His blood, I don't think you know Him yet if you're not in awe of that. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews 2, 3. What does the Bible say? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God Himself, God in the flesh, God incarnate. Yes, that's Jesus in the manger. And yes, that's God on the cross. He's come to redeem His people. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So as we think about the resurrection of Jesus, I thought it would be good to remember His death. To remember what this is all about. You may remember several years ago when Mel Gibson's movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, there was this allegation made against uh, Gibson's movie that it was anti-Semitic. Do you remember this? It was anti-Semitic. Well, let me ask you, what does the Bible say? Who killed Jesus Christ? What does the Bible say? Very clearly. Pardon me? <laughs> Who killed Jesus? What does the Bible say? Who killed God? The Jews. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. The Gentiles. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. But preeminently, God killed God. This was a God-initiated event. If you just go to that great text, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's preaching to the Jews, and he said, This man, referring to Jesus Christ, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you killed him. You nailed him to the tree. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What men of their own free will meant for evil? What? God meant for the greatest good the cosmos has ever witnessed. Men of their own free will, uh, depraved and rebellious will, they murdered the Son of God. And God of His own free will, gracious and loving will, redeemed His people. The Bible is clear. Ultimately, God the Father delivered up His Son. Romans 8, 32. And ultimately, God the Son laid His life down of His own initiative, right? John chapter 10, 18. The crucifixion of God was God ordained, God decreed, God planned, and God initiated. Don't ever forget that. Jesus did not get caught in a corner. He did not get boxed in. He did not accidentally end up on the cross. He was born for that. He came for one reason, to glorify His Father and to redeem His bride. That's why Jesus came. He came to bring glory to the grace of God and to redeem a people for Himself. It was with resolute premeditation that Jesus went to the cross. So why is God going to allow Himself to be scourged and crucified? Why is he going to allow that to happen? You know, you know John chapter 10. It's one of my favorite chapters in, in the Bible. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the kalos shepherd. You know, you look at that word kalos. There's this aspect, not only that he's morally good, but he's, he's, he's beautiful. Kalos, it's the Greek word that we build the word kaleidoscope from. Kalos, he's beautiful. He's the beautiful shepherd. And he's here to lay his life down. He's here to lay his life down. For the sheep. Why is Jesus going to the cross? Because Exodus 15.3, He's a warrior. 
And he's putting himself between the enemy. He's putting himself between Satan's sin, death, and hell, and his people. He's a warrior God, as the Jews so rightly exclaimed in Exodus 15. He's a warrior shepherd. And he's come to redeem his people. Jesus says, nobody takes my life. What does he say? I lay it down. No man, no group of men, no army, no group of armies could take his life. He laid it down for his people. Jesus says, I've come to do this on my own initiative. No man could take his life. Jesus came to save his people. He came to save his people. He is a warrior. Most of you know the, the text, and I know tonight's different. I'm not just going to preach verse by verse. I know this is different tonight, but this is a special night I think and we need to take time to stop and think deeply about these things most of you remember that Pilate tried to, to play the middle with Jesus just like millions still try to do today you know they, they want to play the middle they want to find that soft easy uh, amenable spot that spot that you know you can still uh, compromise with the world and call yourself a Christian you know that religious spot people are still trying to find that spot and I'm making an application here with Pilate. Pilate wanted to play the middle. He didn't want to kill Christ. He knew there was no guilt in him. This is what Pilate said. I find no guilt in the man. He tried to play the middle. Just like millions still do. But you can't play the middle with Christ. Man, you either love him or you don't know him at all. Amen? <coughs> to love him, or pardon me, to know him is to love him. If you don't love him, you don't know him. He may be some religious icon to you or to others. But if you have not given your affections to Him, if you are not building your life around Him, then you haven't met Him yet. To know Him is to love Him. There is no gray, lukewarm place to stand when it comes to Christ. God has never given us that option. We are either in love with God or we have rejected God. And Pilate's trying to play the middle. And you know, uh, he tries to satisfy the bloodlust of the religious leaders so he has Jesus scourged. And I just want to explain or talk to you a little bit about a Roman scourging just for a few minutes. It was a very brutal and hideous torture. The Romans used a whip of braided leather strips and it had metal balls. Some of the strips would have metal balls on them. And it would also have, some of the other strips would have pieces of sharp bone or metal shards woven, woven into the strips. And the metal balls would cause contusion and the, the bones and metal shards would rip open those contusions. And so God would have been given 39 lashes. Jesus was given 39 lashes. From the top of His shoulders, His back, His buttocks, and the back of His legs would have been opened up and they would have been raw. How many of you have seen Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ? This is the, probably the most realistic scourging uh, scene I've ever seen. It's hard to watch. But this is what would have happened. This is the thing that Jesus has submitted Himself to. The back was so shredded that parts of the ribs, uh, spine, muscles, and even internal organs would sometimes be exposed. This was such a brutal and heinous torture. Historians tell us that men uh, did die simply from being scourged. Why is Jesus submitted to this? Because he's a warrior and he's a shepherd. And he's come to save his people. You've got to love this. How can you not love the gospel? You know, you know why Jesus hates lukewarm religion? <laughs> One reason. God's not lukewarm about anything. 
God's not lukewarm about anything. Man, there's no, there's no cost, there's no price too high to pay to come and redeem His people. Man, Jesus isn't lukewarm. He's getting beat to death. God doesn't do anything lukewarm. This is why God hates lukewarm religion. He doesn't understand it. He can't relate to it. God has an everlasting love for His people, a God-sized love for His people, and He's come to lay His life down for His sheep. This is why Christians who know Christ and really have come into a life-changing relationship with Him are willing to lay down everything for Him. Because they realize He has already done that for us. It's no small thing to do it, uh, to reciprocate. If you've met Him, if you've met Him, you know you feel these things in your heart. Sometimes they well up in your heart. And you realize, man, <laughs> I need to be more real. I need to be more real with him. I need to, yeah, I need to really follow him. I need to follow him. You know Isaiah 53, 5, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, what? We are healed. Jesus is healing us as he is beaten 39 times at the post. John 19, 2, 3 tells us that after they had scourged God, they put a, a crown of thorns on God's head and they put a purple robe on God and they mocked God and they hit God in the face. Matthew 27, 30 tells us that, that they spat upon God and they beat God on the head with, with a reed. In John 19, 5 and 6, Pilate says, he brings Jesus out after the scourging and he says, Behold the man! And the chief priests in the crowds cry out, what, what do they say? Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And what did the Jews say? We have no king but Caesar. Crucify! Pilate was trying to play the middle. The Jews were crying for the blood of God. The Jews have utterly rejected their Messiah. They have utterly rejected Him. And John 19, 16 tells us that Pilate delivered him up to be crucified. John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus carried his own cross beam. Now, this is an astonishing thing. We know the biblical account. He didn't make it all the way. Uh, uh, Simon of, of uh, Serene, uh, Serene carried it part of the way for him, but that he could carry it at all is an amazing thing after the scourging that Jesus took. What would have happened is there would have been four Roman soldiers around him and they would march him through the city and a fifth soldier would have carried a placard which would have uh, proclaimed the crime of Jesus. What was Jesus' crime? Does anybody remember? He claimed to be king of the Jews. Well, this is no crime at all. This is just a fact. Amen? This is just a fact. But this is the placard that would have been carried in front of Jesus as he was paraded through Jerusalem, because the crucifixion was so horrible, many men had to be literally dragged to the place of execution, but not Christ. This is why He came. This is why He came. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to slaughter. John 19, 17, 18 tells us that they took Jesus to Golgotha and there... Simply it says they crucified Him. They crucified God. Let me just explain a little bit about crucifixion. First, they stripped God utterly naked. Second, uh, 
They would have laid God down on the crossbeam and they took seven-inch spikes and they drove them through his wrists, not his hands, but through his wrists. And it would have crushed the medial nerve, uh, generating tremendous pain. Then they, they hoisted God vertically and they drove spikes through his feet, crushing and severing nerves in his feet. And as the vertical beam was hoisted and dropped into the hole with a thud, both of God's shoulders would have been uh, thrown out of socket. Gibson's movie is very accurate there. It's just the cross would have been thrown into a hole and it was boom as it hit the bottom. His shoulders would have been dislocated. Let me just read uh, what happens to a man on the cross. I, I took this out of a book. Let me just read it to you. Listen to me just for a minute, please. Once the victim is hanging on in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the victim must push up on his feet so that the tension of the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bone. After managing to exhale, the victim would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push up, pardon me, push himself up to exhale, scraping uh, his raw back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on until complete exhaustion would take over and the victim would, be, uh, able, would not be able to push up any longer and therefore he would be unable to breathe and he would die. The entire nervous system was racked with pain. Bo uh, bones were pulled out of joint. Ligaments and muscles are stretched beyond endurance. Restriction of blood flow created an acute sense of oppression upon the chest. Dehydration, fever, pounding headache, scorching Middle Eastern sun, and stinging and biting insects feasting upon his open wounds. Uh, crucifixion was the annihilation of a man. That's what crucifixion was. It was the utter destruction and denial, uh, annihilation of a man. You know, when Jesus told his men to pick up their cross and follow him, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They had seen men crucified. Hey, this is not some run in the park with a bouquet of, of balloons, right? To go with Christ, we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks. It may cost you everything. And they knew it. When Jesus said, take up your cross, they knew exactly what he was saying. Die to yourself. And go with me. This is, this is God's invitation. This is God's invitation to anyone who will repent and believe. This is God's open invitation. If we will pick up our cross and follow Him. You, some of you know the word excruciating. Do you know where the word originated? If you were here last year, you know. <laughs> the word excruciating origina originates from crucifixion. It's uh, from the Latin. Um, the word means intensely painful, agonizingly painful, marked by great in intense pain. The prefix ex means intensive. The, the root cruciare means to crucify. Excruciating uh, is simply a word that was brought into being to describe the torture of crucifixion. So let me just pause for a minute and make sure we understand what all of this is about. We understand what uh, this excruciating death of God is all about, right? You understand what this is about, right? It's about your sin. That's what this is about. It's about your sin. And it's about my sin. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
you know, many reject Christianity because they're offended by the savage, bloody cross. But friends, if there's no cross, there is no salvation. If there is no cross, you and I are on our ways to hell. If there is no cross, there is no salvation. You know, the bloody cross offends the sensibilities of many. You know, they want a pretty and a proper religion, one full of pomp and pageantry. But without the cross, we have no hope. And beloved, the cross gives us some small, as we talked about two or three weeks ago, it gives us some small sense of how heinous our sin is in the eyes of God. Look at that bloody cross and you get some sense about how much God hates your sin and how much God hates my sin. Sin is infinitely heinous to the eyes of a holy God. We talked about this at length a couple of weeks ago. And God is not just a little put out about your sin. He's not just a little miffed about it. He hates it. What does the Bible say? His, his wrath has been kindled. We talked a lot about this a couple of weeks ago. We saw that His wrath and His fury and His anger and His indignation against the rebellion uh, of man, it's fierce, the Bible says. Sixteen times you'll find the, 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 the adjective fierce in front of the word wrath. You know, we talked about what Jonathan Edwards says. Man, it's bad enough just to talk about the omnipotent wrath of God, but the Bible says the fierce wrath of God. And then Jonathan Edwards says this in his famous sermon. He says, Who can know the depth and power of the anger of God? Well, who can? Someone tell me. Who can know? Jesus knows. He knows every bit of it. He paid for every sin. Every sin for all of His people. Everyone. And friends, if you've got sin in your life that you're putting up with, that you're playing with, I want to challenge you as your pastor. I want to lovingly challenge you. You, you need to see what that costs. You need to see what that looks like in God's eyes. And you need to repent. You need to put that sin down. You need to come clean with God. Personal challenge. Man, you look at the cross, you get some sense of how heinous our sin is before the Lord. Isaiah 53.10 But God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, to render him a guilt offering. And that's what Jesus is for every born-again believer. He is our guilt offering. As we talked about several weeks ago, we are radically, we are radically reconciled. Once we were enemies, but now we're what? We're sons and daughters. We were the enemies of God. We were children of wrath, as the Bible says. Now we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Abba, Father. We are co-heirs. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. I just have to say it again. He, the Father, made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, radically reconciled. I want to say something to you. I hope you never forget. What God's holiness demanded, God's love provided. What God's holiness demanded, which is pure righteousness, God's love has provided for His people through Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. What God's holiness has demanded, God's love has provided. You know, you look at the cross, it's the perfect co-mingling of grace and wrath. Actually, you could do a great study. Every one of God's attributes are on display in the cross. Every single one of them. They're on display in the cross. The bloody, brutal, savage, excruciating cross 
That's how ugly your sin is and my sin is. Isaiah 53, 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Jesus was alive on the cross for six hours. Uh, most of you know this. From the third hour to the ninth hour. That would be from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. total of six hours. Matthew 27, 45 tells us that darkness fell on the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon to 3 p.m. This darkness, of course, is symbolic of God's curse that fell on Jesus. The Father turns His back on the Son for those three hours. And this has to be the hardest part of the crucifixion for Jesus. Obviously, the physical suffering is inexpressible. But I think I know that the emotional and spiritual suffering of Jesus infinitely eclipsed His physical suffering. Man, He'd been one with the Father from an eternity past. He'd been one with God forever. And now it's gone. Why? Because He's a warrior shepherd. He's redeeming His people. That's why. That's how much Jesus loves His people. That's how much. It's breathtaking, friends. If this, if this is not breathtaking to you, you, you haven't got a clue about it yet. You've not understood it. If it's some small religious thing to you, God help you. This is supposed to change your life. This is supposed to change your eternity. God has come and He's been nailed to a tree. That should inform every single day we live and how we live and what we do and how we do it. Is God honored? Is God honored in our life? That's the simple call of a Christian. I know none of us do it perfectly, but that is the fundamental, simple call of the Christian to honor God in our lives. One, one theologian said it like this about those three hours where the Father turned His back on the Son. From the sixth to ninth hour, Jesus suffered in silence the torments of hell. From a human standpoint, this was a limited period of time. However, for Jesus... The divine Holy Son of God, it represents an eternity of suffering, an eternity of separation from the Father. I believe that's right. Matthew 27, 46 uh, tells us that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father hears His Son's cry and immediately the darkness is dispelled. The Father has received the sacrifice of His Son. The veil is rent. The earth shook. The rocks are split. Tombs are open. Jesus cries out, It is finished! And this is not a martyr's cry of defeat. This is a cry of victory. Jesus says, It is finished! And Jesus says, Father, into Thy hands I commend, I commit My Spirit. And Matthew 27.50 tells us, He yielded up His Spirit. No man took His life. No man took it. Jesus gave it up for the redemption of His people. And you remember what Jesus said, John 10, 18, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. The great warrior, shepherd. No, this evening we're not here worshiping a dead martyr. Amen? 
We're not here worshiping a dead martyr. We're worshiping the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, returning King. He is the great Creator God and He's coming back for His people. And I just want to insert parenthetically, I'm not going to waste any uh, pulpit time uh, rebutting the skeptics about the resurrection. You guys know that some will contend this was some mass hallucination of, of 500 plus people uh, saying they saw Jesus uh, that he was not really dead, that he just swooned on the cross, or that the disciples stole the body. If you look at all of these allegations, none of them hold water. And if you have serious questions about the, the factual accuracy, his, uh, the historical accuracy of the crucifixion and the resurrection, you should read this. It's a great book by Lee Strobel. Uh, I'm not going to waste time uh, uh, rebutting the skeptics. But Lee Strobel was an atheist. He actually started investigating Christianity because his wife was a Christian, okay? So he's a Yale-educated lawyer, and he was an editor at the Chicago Tribune. I mean, the guy was, you know, he was like a, he was uh, up, up uh, really, really high on the food chain. But he thought, hey, I'm just going to, I'm going to investigate this thing. He ended up becoming a Christian. You know what he says? he says? He says, I was ambushed by the evidence. It would have required much more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to believe in Jesus Christ. Christ, uh, the Bible affirms, appeared no fewer than 11 times over a period of 40 days to, uh, no more, than, to, to more than 500 people. So I'm going to spend the last few minutes, I've got a few minutes, I'm going to spend the last few minutes talking about one of those appearances. Real Christians don't believe that Jesus is risen merely because a researcher like Strobel can pile up the facts. It's great that researchers, uh, historians can pile up the facts. It's great to have facts. Go Lee Strobel. I'm glad for this book. It's a great book. But that's not why I believe. I don't believe because men have piled up historical facts. I believe for the same reason that Mary Magdalene believed. And you can turn with me if you'd like to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm just going to read that account to you very briefly. John chapter 20, verse 11. When Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, be familiar to most of you, if not all of you, but listen to the text here. John 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels uh, in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. Actually, that's a picture of the mercy seat, uh, Exodus 25. You can do some research on that. It's awesome. Verse 13, And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. The first thing you notice here in the text is that Mary is weeping for no good reason. Why is Mary weeping for no good reason? Someone tell me. He says, I'm coming back. This is one of the astonishing things about the resurrection. None of his people, none of his disciples believed it. None of them. Not one. So Mary is weeping for no good reason. God is there. She doesn't. Eat. She's talked to Him. She saw Him. She doesn't even recognize Him. 
And there's a sidebar application for you and me here. We've talked about this a lot. When the trial comes, you know, when things look dire, you can count on it. God's coming to his people. God is coming to his people. God never doesn't come to his people in the hard spot. But Mary, she has a lot of love, but she has no face. She doesn't even recognize him. There's no way she could conceive that it could be Jesus standing in front of her. But how does, you know, people will say, well, how does Mary know this is Jesus ultimately? Obviously, it's not simply because uh, she saw him or she heard him speak. Why? Why does she ultimately believe? What does the text say? What does the next verse say? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. That's why she believes. No one can speak your name like your Creator. And if you're a Christian tonight, it's because He has called you out. John chapter 10, I call my sheep by name, my sheep know my voice, and my sheep follow me. If you're a believer tonight, it's for the same reasons that Mary is. Man, when Jesus said, Mary, (laughs) she knew. She knew it was the Lord. It was the Lord. It was a God encounter. Her beautiful shepherd had called her by name. And you remember, you remember over in John chapter 10, I, I just need to insert this, John chapter 10, verse 26. You remember what Jesus told the Pharisees. You remember what He said to them. He said, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now I know that many people hate it when God talks like this, but this is how God talks. Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not mine. I know there's a whole theological spectrum that hates the way Jesus talks when He says things like that. But Jesus' sheep know His voice. And when He calls their name, they come. This is the teaching of Scripture. And Mary immediately recognizes the voice of her good shepherd, her, her beautiful, excellent, magnificent, praiseworthy shepherd. It's never been, this has never been about religion. I know religion has tried to hijack this all down through the ages. This is not about religion. It's about relationship. It's about, what does Jesus say in John chapter 10? John chapter 17? It's about knowing Him. So let me ask you, Christian friend, have you been playing religion with God or is this thing real? Is it real? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? Are you communing with Him? Are you hearing Him speak to you? And are you speaking to Him? Christianity, biblical Christianity, is relational. So here we are 2,000 years later, worshiping our beautiful shepherd, our beautiful warrior shepherd. He is I Am. He is the Creator. He is the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, returning God before whom every moral creature in the universe will bow their knee. Even the damned will bow their knee and confess that He is Lord. Philippians chapter 2. We're not here worshiping a dead martyr. We're here worshiping the resurrected God. The world thinks we're hopeless simpletons. They think we're worshiping a dead Jewish carpenter. The world uses our our God's name as a, a curse word. But we know who He is. He's our shepherd. And He's our warrior. And we know what He's done. He's laid His life down for us. And we know He's coming back soon. That's what He tells us. He says, I'm coming back quickly for my people. 
And no one can separate my people from my love. This is what God says. This is what God says. Revelation twenty-two, twelve. Jesus says, I am coming back quickly. So Christian, I invite you to celebrate this happy Resurrection Sunday. Hallelujah! Our Redeemer lives. Amen? Hallelujah! Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen. He is our God. And next time He comes back, He won't be a babe in a manger. And I'm just going to close with Revelation 19, 11 through 16. When the sky splits and Jesus comes back, this is what we will see. Revelation 19, 11, And I saw heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has uh, a name written upon him which no uh, one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth came the sharp word, pardon me, the sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations, and with it rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Awesome, beautiful God. Forgive us. Forgive us. I know I'm guilty. I have not loved you as I ought. I have not worshipped you as I ought. I have not loved you and adored you and served you as I ought. Lord, when I read the Scriptures, I can't help but be in awe of who You are and what You've done. I I pray, Father, that we could get some small sense. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would teach us. I pray that He would teach us, that He would bring this this truth home to us in a life-changing way. Father, we can't, that we no longer could just simply live like the world and compromise with it. But that we'd be serious about what You've called us to do, to be holy, as You are holy. To be salt and light. To live in such a way that Jesus is high and lifted up and magnified and seen and glorified. And that unbelievers around us would see His beauty. And His worth. Oh God, help us to be real Christians. Not just those who talk a lot, but those who do the Word a lot. Help us, Father, we pray. And I pray, Father, as we come to the table, that we would come with great humility, that we would come in full repentance of our sin. We would come remembering what an awesome warrior shepherd You are. 
Who is a God like ours? There is none. We praise you, great King. We praise you, great Lord. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. I lost my thing. My thing fell off. We're going to take communion. Um, what we do here is, and as I told you, we have open communion. All who have professed Christ as Lord and Savior and followed Him in believer's baptism, you're welcome to share communion with us. Uh, Tyler will play for a few minutes. Uh, prepare your hearts to come. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Come to the table uh, repenting of your sin in all of the grace of Jesus, in all of the eternity He's purchased for you, in all of His finished work on the cross, remembering His, His, His death and His resurrection. So come in a worthy manner. And as Tyler plays, as you prepare your heart, come up and take the cup, take the bread, uh, go back to your seat, and then, and then after Tyler finishes singing and, and playing, we will, uh, I will stand and read a text, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay?